Well, I got one verse for you today. If you don't remember anything else, memorize this verse. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You want to know where hope comes from. It's not going to come from positive mental attitudes. It's not going to come from happy thoughts in the mind. It's not going to come from a pill or a bottle or anything else or a book. It's going to come through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, then you're going to have a hard time having hope, establishing hope. You may have seasons of hope. You may have times of joy. But I will say this, hope and joy, they're, they're like heads and tails of the same coin. You can't separate the two. When you have joy, you will have hope. When you have hope, you will have joy. This is what Rick Warren said in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. We actually did this study a number of years ago. We're going to bring it back in the spring, and we're going to do it again. We did it about six or seven years ago. But here's what it said. He said, without God, life has no purpose. And without purpose, life has no meaning. Without meaning, life has so no, significant, no significance or hope. If you just boil it down, you just reduce it down, just mathematically figure it out. No hope, no significance. Really, what's the meaning of life? No meaning of life? You won't have meaning of life until you know what the purpose is. You won't know what the purpose of your life is until you figure out what on earth am I here for? Why am I in this cosmic order? Why am I a part of this planet? Did I, am I just by sheer circumstance or happenstance that I'm here? Or is there something deeper out there? I'm telling you, Christ in you is your hope of glory. And also, I'll say this, without Christ, without God, there cannot be hope. Take your Bibles, find the book of Acts chapter 8. Hope and joy fit together perfectly. And we're going to see that lived out in this story today as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, just looking at the early church. Now, there are 28 chapters, I believe, in the book of Acts. We're only going to stop in the next two weeks, so we're not even going to make it through the book of Acts in any, in any stretch of the imagination. We're just hitting the beginning of the early church and kind of laying that foundation before Gary Thomas comes and spends the weekend with us. But I want us to see, again, just continuum of the story that we've been telling, the story that we've been reading of a church that is supposed to be a movement. Let me just say this to everyone in this room. If this is your first time with us today, great. Welcome to Grace Point Church. But we are so glad you're here and we're so ready for you to leave. Now, I'm saying that to everyone, though. Okay, please laugh at that. I'm I'm saying that to our members as well. Because when you come into Grace Point, it's not just so you can be happy and fed here. It is literally our goal as you come in that you will be prepared to go out. That as you come in... You're going to go out with purpose. You're going to go out with meaning. You're going to go out with joy and a focus in your life that maybe you've never had before. So what we're doing is we're excited about you coming in so that we can prepare you to go out. And it's always about the going that we need to be about. The going. Where's God leading? Where's God taking me? Well, he's been sending the church out from the very beginning. So I get that from them, from the book of Acts, because this was a movement that didn't stop. In fact, you go back to the very first message in this series. You go back to that series, uh, that message, and what did I say? God gave us the keys to His kingdom, and then He said the gates of hell aren't going to stop you. That whole concept right there speaks of movement. The gates of hell are not going to stop you. The gates of hell would like to pin you in. The gates of hell would like you to just sit there in that seat and do nothing. Go nowhere, do nothing, impact no one. But the gates of hell won't stop us. We have the keys to the kingdom. Now, the next message in this series was Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he gives us the scope 
and the sequence. Now, any educators in this room today, you know what scope and sequence is. You learn that in your education classes. Scope and sequence, where you're going and how you're going to get there. When you're talking to a kindergarten student and you're trying to get them to know their ABCs, you don't want them to learn their ABCs in 12th grade. You learn it in kindergarten so that they can be reading Moby Dick in the 12th grade. But they've got to know their ABCs in the front end. Well, there's a scope and a sequence to what God has called us to be about in His movement. He says, you've got to start in Jerusalem. You've got to go to Judea. You've got to go to Samaria. And hey, by the way, you're not done till you get to the very end of the earth. And don't stop till you get there. And so that's the calling that we have. That's the scope. That's the sequence. Well, as we've read through Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, we have seen them living high, wide, and handsome, living very strong in their faith. Very committed to their faith, filling the streets of Jerusalem. We've even pointed that out all through those early chapters. But we haven't seen them go beyond Jerusalem. God did call them beyond Jerusalem. He called them to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So now what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see see things begin to change. They begin to change because of what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now if you remember Acts chapter 1, 1 verse 8, just invert those numbers. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, I just referred to it, tells us to go to the ends of the earth, tells us to go to Judea, tells us to go to Samaria, tells us to start in Jerusalem. Tells us all that. But in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is when they do it. Just invert those numbers. You see this happening. So let's begin reading in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul, who we learned about just briefly last week, becomes a great tormentor approved of his execution. His being Stephen, if you weren't with us last week, he made sure that Stephen was fully dead, bleeding, dead, no heartbeat, gone. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. All right? Now, who is the church? Who's the church building? Is it a, is it a facility? No, you are the church. Turn to the person next to you and say, Welcome, I am Grace Point Church. Tell them right now. Go. All right, you are Grace Point Church. And so there's this great persecution that rises up against the people in the church, against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now notice that. It took Acts chapter 8 verse 1 to happen before Acts chapter 1 verse 8 became a reality. So just think about that. Let's keep reading. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentations over over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Again, don't think of a building. Don't think of a complex. Don't think of four walls. They weren't going in graffitiing. They weren't going in burning down the, the building. They didn't have buildings. He was ravaging the people. This Greek word ravaging means to segregate out. It means to sadistically be cruel and brutal to someone. Think Holocaust. Think beatings and bruisings and stonings. Think imprisonment. That's what was going on. Paul, or Saul, excuse me. I don't want to skip ahead. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house, He dragged off men and women. He was no respecter of genders. He'll take you and drag you off to jail and beat you all the way there. He didn't care who you were. And committed them to prison. Not a pretty day. 
Not an easy day, not a fun day, not a comfortable day by any stretch. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs uh, that he did. The unclean spirits that uh, that were crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, verse 1 and verse 8 don't go together. In my paradigm, in my scheme of things, verse 1 doesn't go with verse 8. The fact that there would be persecutions, beating, ravaging of the church, verse 1, and then you skip down to verse 8 that there is much joy in that city. But this is the reality that really what God is going to do is going to blow us our, our minds away when we open ourselves up to being obedient to what He wants us to do. It won't always be easy. In fact, we're going to take some snapshot looks into the, into the early church right now. And I want you to see these early snapshots because they're a lot like us today. These are realities, if you will, of a church and a community because Paul, Saul did not want the church in the community. So he chases them out. And Samaria did receive the church and what happens in their hearts and their lives. Three realities. First reality is the church isn't always welcomed in the community. I wish to say it was. I wish to say that everybody likes the church and the church gets along with everybody. But Jesus alone is a polarizing individual. Think about it for a moment. Jesus himself is polarizing. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that's polarizing. We live in a day and age when we'd like to think of every road, every road, all roads lead to God, all roads lead to heaven, and to think that everyone has to follow Jesus really seems very narrow-minded, doesn't it? It seems very intolerant, doesn't it? When Jesus says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, when we read a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, He says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sounds quite polarizing. That Jesus is the only way. And that is very disconcerting in our culture and in our times. But let me say this. As much as Jesus is polarizing, Jesus is also very inclusive. In Romans... It says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Jesus Christ has removed all the barriers. God has removed all the barriers so that anybody and everybody on the planet, racial distinctions, gender distinctions, education distinctions, class, socioeconomic distinctions, everybody, whosoever, can come to know Christ, can be saved, can be reconciled to God. That's the beauty. Yes, it's polarizing. At the same time, you must understand that Jesus is very inclusive. It's not just any road leads to uh, to heaven. It's the road through Jesus Christ in Him alone. Now, with this whole concept of Christianity, we're living in a day when it's not fully embraced and accepted, that um, our values are considered a little primitive, a little outdated. Our faith is considered a little judgmental, even though it's founded on grace and truth. 
Uh, if we don't agree with everyone, then we seem to appear to be judgmental. We are all 24-7, every single one of us, not just the preacher in the room, every single one of us. We are under our close scrutiny and people are listening to our words, our attitudes, our actions, the way we live out our lives in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and on the job. The reason I say that is because there are agnostic atheists, there are people in your life that are unchurched, that they're looking at you and you're saying you go to Grace Point Church and you're saying you're a follower of Christ and then all of a sudden they see the word, they hear the words, they see the actions of your life. And listen, they're justifying their life based on you. And I, I make no bones about that. Be careful about how you live your life in this day and age. The church, we're the church, you're the church, we're not always accepted because our message is sometimes polarizing. It's very inclusive, but sometimes polarizing. Let me say we're living in a day and age when, when, when more and more rules and laws and people are, don't want to, to accept the church. We started a church a number of years ago, Grace Point 12 years ago, and we met for the first time at Reagan Elementary School in Rogers. Not the first time, but one of the first meeting places, public meeting places. And when we met there, we had a great time. It was a great beginning. Uh, God blessed the church. We became established, I would say, safely at Reagan Elementary School. Fellowship Bible Church down the road also started in the Rogers Public Schools recently in recent years. Rogers School District has voted that churches cannot meet in the schools any longer. Now, why is that? I'm not going to go into all that. A lot of that would be speculation on my part. But it's just interesting that no longer in our society is the church mainstream accepted. Mainstream accepted. Let me put it to you like this. If you, if you want to think about it like this, there is pre-Christianity or pre-Christendom, and then there is post-Christendom, and then right in the middle is Christendom. Now, I wrote a whole dissertation, and this was a major part of it. I'm not going to give you the whole dissertation today on this, but you do need to get this concept down. Because we are living in the post-Christian age. When Christianity is no longer mainstream, we are marginalized, we are at the edges. There was a day that Christianity was mainstream, but let's talk about pre-Christendom. This is when the church was also marginalized. From the birth of the church to 313 is when the church was a considered a cult. We are talking about that day and age right here. They're chasing the church out, they're ravaging the church, they're beating the church. But in 313, Constantine legalized Christianity, making it mainstream at that point. That became mainstream religion in the modern world in 313. Well, up until the French Revolution or the Enlightenment period, up until that point, the church was the center of society. There was no separation of church and state. Church was state and state was the church. There was no separation. Now today, we are living in what's called post-Christendom where the church is no longer asked out, sought out its truth, its morals set as the standards for society. It is now marginalized. It is now on the edge. We have more, one person said it like this, we have more in common with the first century than we do the 15th century when it comes to the church. There is more in common. Just, just hang on that. Churches are closing their doors. Churches are becoming mausoleums and, uh, and, 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 and antique stores in, all across Europe. You can go down to the square on Bentonville and see an old Calvary Baptist church. It's no longer a church any longer. It's now a banquet hall called the sanctuary. You can see all across our land, 2,000 churches close their doors every year. The church is not alive across America. 
and well. There are pockets of hope and glimmers of hope. But the church is not vibrant and well. Most churches, 78%, are actually plateaued or declining. Now all this is relevant to what I'm saying here, so just hang with me. We're living in a day when Christianity is not mainstream. It's not the center of society. It's not accepted as the norm. Listen, my, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Lingle, who used to lead us in the Lord's Prayer before going to lunch and had the Ten Commandments hanging on her, on her uh, wall behind her desk, that is a forgotten dinosaur. It would never happen today because we are not living where Christianity is the mainstream of our society. We are now on the edges just like it was in the first century. I'm saying this to say that the church isn't always welcomed in the community. We're going to talk about how to address that in a moment. You can see through church attendance. The study was done not asking how many of y'all go to church or how many people go to church. They actually asked the churches how many people were at church in society. And they found that when they did it, compared it against the population of, of, of that day, that 17.7% of Americans are attending church on a regular basis. While many of them call themselves Christians, most of them are not regular attenders. What I'm saying is I'm just saying that we're on the outs. We're on the fringe. We're marginalized. We're not the center of culture. The world doesn't want to hear from the church any longer. One person said it like this, Neither the Lord Jesus Himself nor the early church regarded minority status as abnormal. All I'm saying is that's okay. It was only with the advent of Christendom that the church was seduced into believing that she should exercise a majority control by force, not faith. So the church is on the perimeter, it's on the edge, it's not mainstream. And you and I, if we live out our Christian beliefs, it will not be mainstream accepted. We will be countercultural. But we need to get used to that. The words that mark post-Christendom are words like diversity and tolerance, not truth and righteousness. Diversity and tolerance is the way that we're supposed to live out of our lives. It's what we're taught in schools. It's what we're taught in our code of conduct in our business places. Diversity and tolerance. And what Scripture says, truth, righteousness. Now, I know that there's a clash with that. I know that that will not be accepted in mainstream. Neither was it in the first century. When you look at that passage and you again see how he ravaged the church, you understand that persecution is alive and well throughout the world. I'm talking about severe physical persecution when I say this. Christianity published a study that was, Christianity Today published a study a few years ago said that the number of martyrs in everyday society in the 1900s was 90 a day. In the 2000s, it's been as high as 440 a day. We are growing ever intolerant of Christianity in a world that we're told to be tolerant of everyone. Hang with me. I'm going somewhere with this. In fact, you can see on this map the persecution across the world where people are facing their lives on the line is, is, is throughout the world. The guy who was playing the bongo drums back here a few moments ago, Troy Hall, lives in a nation where if he were to take his Bible out and even read it out in public, could be find himself in prison or sent away from the island. It is a very difficult world to be a Christian in. Now, what do we face here in our culture? 
What do we face right here at home? I call it social persecution. People will invite you, say, hey, I'll let you be on my traveling team, but you're going to have to miss church on Sunday. I'll invite you to be, but you're, hey, listen, our, our, our commitment is here. Listen, there's nothing sacred anymore. I wish there'd be a few Eric Littles would rise up, rise up in our, in our day and age. You study Eric Little, when, when Chariots of Fire movie, whenever he refused to run on Sunday because that was God's day. We need a few more people to rise up in our own culture and say, listen, I may have to ride the bench. I may not do that, but my faith and my faith development and my worship of God is first and foremost above everything else. We face social persecution. We take the Ten Commandments out of, religion, out of, our, out of our schools. We take them out of, our, out of our government buildings. And what are we seeing today? Every day you turn on the news, there's another mass killing. God forbid that values such as don't kill, don't, don't steal, don't, 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 don't commit adultery, don't covet against your neighbor. Well, God forbid that we would teach our children to honor our father and our mother. Please help our culture. The reality is in our society... We're pushing it aside. There's more. There's more. There's so much more. I got one, one guy in our church told me in a, about a private closed-door meeting he had with his supervisor in a company that many of you all would know if I named it out loud. Whenever he was told he's taking too many vacations, he's taking his vacation days to go around the world. He's using all of his vacations to serve God on global adventures. And, and he was using all of them that were given to him, and he was using them to serve God. And his boss basically told him, he said, you're wasting a lot of your days on these trips around the world when I need you right here. Now, I know there's management issues with that. There's two sides of every story and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I'm trying to say. We are facing in our day and age a social persecution if you live out your faith. Listen, Christians. Listen, church. We're going to have to learn to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable if we're going to live out our faith. Just get ready for it. If you're going to swim upstream, it will not be easy. If you start defining marriage in a biblical basis, if you start defining when life begins, you'll be considered political and ostracized, blackballed. Be careful. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm not talking about being belligerent, mean, and ugly against the, against the world. I, I hate Christians like, that do that. I hate it when Christians do that. It just it doesn't help the cause. But we have to realize, as Philip had to realize, as the early church had to realize, this world is not comfortable with our Christianity. But let me talk about number two. How can the church begin to make a difference still? The church can make meaningful touches in its community. If the community isn't accepting the church, we can go into the community and make meaningful, powerful, life-changing touches on the community. Philip is a guy that we're introduced to in this passage. We haven't seen him very many times. You won't see him a whole lot of times. But he had a home in, in uh, Caesarea. We know that. But he is, if, if Stephen was our first martyred follower of Christ, Philip is our first missionary for Christ. He lived and had a home in Caesarea, but he went down to Samaria. So he worked cross-culturally. He crossed cultural barriers and he worked among them. He's even called Philip the Evangelist. You find him evangelizing the very first believer from Africa. This man was out there, and he was not afraid to be out there. As he goes out and he shares his faith, lives are changed. 
And we can find it there in a passage in chapter 8, verse 4. Let me read it to you again. And they scattered and they went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria proclaiming to them the Christ. And they in one accord, everyone sat still, everyone got quiet, everyone leaned in and they listened. Lives begin to get changed at this point. Listen, what I'm about to show you, and what I'm about to challenge you with, you need to listen up very carefully. Because if we're going to be in a community that doesn't like the church and doesn't like our religious values and wants to push us off as some kind of, uh, some kind of outdated, archaic kind of society, if we're going to make a difference in our society, we're going to have to learn to make meaningful touches on our society. How do we do that? The same way Philip did. He blessed them body, soul, and spirit. We have a commitment as a church that we want to bless our community, body, soul, and spirit. We've said if you want to bless a community, the best thing you could do is start a church because it's the only organization that will bless a community, body, soul, and spirit. And that's exactly what we're going to see Philip do. The very first thing that Philip does is he blesses their soul. He gets there and he teaches them. He says it preaches the word, proclaiming to them the Christ. That was the content of his message. What did I read at the very beginning of this message? Christ in you is the hope. You want to have hope? You want to share hope? You want to give hope? Give Christ. If you give Christ away, you touch people's souls. And when you do that, you help them have a relationship with God. Preach Christ. Share your story of Christ, how he changed your life. Do what you can to share the message of Christ with those around you. He also blessed their spirit. Notice this, that that many of them were were terrorized, demonized. There were spirits that came out of them, it says there in that verse that we just read. Verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out. This is demon possession, demon oppression, whatever you want to call it. These people were heavily influenced by demons. Now let me tell you my story on this. I've experienced and dealt with people who are demon-possessed and oppressed here in America, first-world America. I've dealt with people in Africa, third-world developing countries. And here is one thing that is common about both examples, both scenarios. Listen to this very carefully. Satan's greatest tool, most commonly used tool to get at you and to get at me and to oppress me and to, and to possess others, listen to this, is the word fear. He captures you with fear. Fear of yesterday. Fear of today. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of the unknown. Fear of failure. Fear paralyzes you, grips you, holds you down, holds you back, keeps you from moving forward. And what is, what is, what is Philip? He steps into the scene. He steps into the situation. He helps free these people. Free them from this demonic oppression and possession that was controlling and gripping them. Some of you in this room right now are struggling, gripped by fear. Won't move forward in life. Won't go deeper in life because fear has gripped you. You touch someone's spirit, you set them free to live. And whom the Son has set free, you are free indeed. And whether you're going to walk in that freedom is a different story. Or you're going to go back into the slavery of fear again. Bless the body as well. He blessed the body, He blessed the soul, He blessed the spirit. Now where do you see that? You see that in verse 7, when the paralyzed and the lame were healed. 
Now, you may not have the gift of healing and you may not be a doctor and you may not be able to help people extend people's lives, but you realize by the mere touch of your hands, by the mere warm embrace of a child who's never been held and loved and caressed, meaningful, valuable, safe touches, a third, a third of the five million receptors, touch receptors, that are in your body or in your hands. And as you hold someone, touch somebody, caress someone, grip someone, embrace someone in a meaningful, valuable way, you are transferring a, a healing bomb that would not be there otherwise. Think about ways you can touch someone's life. And merely by touching their life, you help them. You set them free. You enable them to live. Across this stage are what I call treasure chest. I'm going to challenge you today. We're attempting to give away $10,000 today in $10 notes. All across this stage, we gave it away in our last service. We're giving it away in this service. And we're challenging you to take a $10 challenge and to go out into this community and bless someone. Bless our community somehow, some way. There's a lots of ways you can do it online. In fact, we have a whole list of, of ways that you can be a blessing to someone in someone's life. You can buy flowers for someone. You can buy lunch for someone. You can buy five encouragement cards for someone and write each one of them a meaningful note, handwritten from you, and be a blessing in five different people's lives with $10. Think about it. One of my favorite ones that's online, we don't have it up there, is that you could actually take uh, that, that $10 bill and, and you could take someone's kids to the park and you could play with their kids at the park and, uh, to, and set that maybe single mom free for a couple of hours to be alone and you're giving of your time to, to play with those kids and then, and then you go buy Eureka Pizza. And I'm not advocating Eureka Pizza. I don't eat it myself. But uh, you could buy them Eureka Pizza too for five bucks is what I've heard. Uh, if that's real food, I don't know. But uh, anyway, you could do that or buy them hot dog. I don't know. What could you buy for 10 bucks and then take it home and feed the family for the evening with $10? You've given your time. You've given your resources. In a moment, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you the opportunity. It's up to you if you want to take it or not to come to each one of these, these treasure chests, if you will, to take a, a $10 note and to take one of these cards because we want you to process through what you're doing. There's two commitments that we ask, that you not spend it on yourself or your immediate family, okay? You ought to be blessing your family without our help, all right? Uh, number, number two is that you report back how you spent or invested the money, all right? This is good accountability on your part, but this is just how you can take this card Fill it out. Bring it back next week. You can go online and fill it out. I'd really prefer you do that. You go online and fill it out. You can, there's a QR code. You can zap it and go online. You can go on our main website and you can do that. Go online. Tell us how you use this. Maybe you added 20 bucks to it and you gave 30 bucks. Maybe you as a body life group pulled all your money together and you blessed an entire family with meals for the week. Maybe you, uh, uh, whatever it is that you do, write about it. Tell us about it. And then the last question is, what did God teach you through this? Because here's what you're going to learn. When you learn and take on the activity of being a blessing, 
you yourself will be blessed. As we go out and we bless our community, our community will be blessed, but you will be blessed. Which brings me to my third point. The third reality of about the church and the community. The community will value the church when the church is a blessing. The church doesn't, the, the community doesn't accept the church on its own. But we've got to go make meaningful touches. When we make meaningful touches, guess what? The church in the community will be valued. There will be a, a relationship with us. Look at verse 8. Read it out loud with me. The last words in this little phrase, a little short verse, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Now, that was pretty weak. Come on, guys. I'm... Ready? So there was much joy in that city. Now, let's insert the word Bentonville. So there was much joy in Bentonville. Let's insert Rogers. So there was much joy in Rogers. Let's do Centerton. So there was much joy in Centerton. Anybody live in Bella Vista? All right, let's do Bella Vista. So there was much joy in Bella Vista. Anybody live anywhere else? Springdale. All right. So there was much joy in Springdale. And the list can go on. Wherever you live, be the agent of joy. Be the one who brings joy. Be the one who brings hope to that community. The world won't like our, 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 our morals and our values. And they're not going to accept them because we try to shove them down their throat. They're going to accept them whenever we show Christ's love. And when we are the church, and don't just pound and yell that we are the church. A life principle for you, and I'm finished. To give hope is to receive hope. We are recipients of God's hope if we're children of God. And as we give it, we're going to receive it back. You will be blessed as you are the church, as you act as the church and live as the church in this community. Would you pray with me? Just with every head bowed, in this room today, some of y'all may be looking at your own life right now and you may be saying, I don't, I don't know Christ. And in such a way that I live daily, I go to bed at night and lay my head down at night and I live with hope. I live with joy. My, my call to you today is to just tell Jesus, I want you, Jesus. You said in your word, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, I'm calling on you. You add your own little prayer in there. You, you lay it out there before Jesus. He's always ready to save those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7 says. He wants to make a difference in your life. He wants to pour hope into your life. And the great thing is as you receive that hope, you now can go give that hope. I don't care if you're a guest, if you're a first-timer here, if you've been here a hundred times, these treasure chests are open. Father God, you, you know this room. You know the hearts of the people in this room. Lord, would you, would you use us as your hands and feet to be a blessing to Northwest Arkansas, to Bentonville, to Centerton, to Bella Vista, to Jane, to Rogers, to Springdale, to Fayetteville, to Eureka Springs. 
Wherever our people are from, Lord, would you help us to go and spread the joy and the hope of what it means to be a child of God. And $10 isn't going to make that difference, but it's the message of Christ in them. Maybe our love and our embrace and our investment of $10, $20, $50, Lord, might grab their attention long enough that we can share the story of Jesus with them. Lord, help us to be the church. In Jesus' name.